Father, what we have just sung is a fitting prayer and fitting song for every day. It is also a fitting song and prayer for any worship service when we gather to sing, to pray, to read, to preach, to fellowship, to be reminded of the preeminence and priority of your glory. And it is appropriate to pray as we come to open your word. For Father, in everything we do, we want your glory to be exalted. We want, we want you to be revealed. And Father, we want to delight in that revelation. We want to find satisfaction in you as you are exposed to us from your word. We acknowledge we need transformation. But part of that transformation is also the transformation into delight, joy, contentment, peace, satisfaction, happiness, blessedness. Father, we, we want you to be the object of all the things that we pursue. And so as we look again at this passage, might we handle it in such a way that you are rightly revealed and might that drive us to joy in you? There's almost nothing in this world that will give joy and satisfaction and there is nothing in this world that will give ultimate joy. And so, Father, might we find the pursuit of you to be our happiness today. And might it be revealed to us in this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are probably as many different political opinions in this room as there are people. And we all are want to reveal those opinions at particular times. And for all the differences of opinions about government and politics... I think we can all agree that we live in a very complex and difficult days, both politically and socially. There have always been debated issues on the political spectrum, but those issues today seem to be particularly complex. Consider the question about life. Where does life begin and where does it end? Does anyone have the right to terminate life at either its beginning or end? And under what circumstances? Or gender? What is gender? Is it fluid or fixed? And who determines what one's gender is? And can gender be altered? Justice and social justice. What does it mean to be just? Who determines what is just? Is all justice equal in its exercise? Should justice be suspended in circumstances where greater injustices have occurred? Are things like reparations for past injustice appropriate? Ethnicity and race. Is the idea of systemic racism a reality? If so, how do we alter and fix it? If not, then what is the effect of how we have uh, subjugated a race of people for centuries in our country? How do we evaluate CRT, sexual ethics? What is pornography? Who defines it? And is it wrong? And according to whose standard? And what about homosexual conduct and homosexual marriage? And, and what is marriage after all? And who defines that? And what is sexual abuse? And how will it be addressed? Environment. What does being a steward and caring for this world look like? Should Christians be concerned about endangered species, litter on the side of the road, global warming, the use of pesticides and herbicides, and highway beautification? Or can a believer just say, Jesus is coming, and if you think the world's a mess now, wait till he's finished with it, so shoot, a Bambi, and, shoot Bambi and walk on the grass? I don't know, just a suggestion. And we haven't even talked about education or gambling or economic theory, or capital punishment, or poverty, or health care, or moral standards, or war theory. 
to name a few. It's no wonder our friend has his head bowed, doesn't it? Here's daunting times. And in all those instances, one of the chief decision makers is the government. And inevitably, they are going to make decisions about those issues and many more that are contrary to our belief system. So we not only need to think carefully about those issues, but we need to understand how we will relate to the government that is making the decisions about those topics and issues. How will we respond? Well, let's remember what Paul says about our relationship to government in Romans 13. We have read this numerous times, so I won't read it again. You're familiar with it. Every believer should always honor his government. That's the baseline. Every believer should always honor his government. Three responses for the believer to the government. So the first two weeks as we looked at this, we looked at what are the government's responsibility to the believer? What should the government be doing? How can we look to the government? And what are our expectations of the government? And now for the third week, we're flipping that around and thinking, what is our response to the government? How should we relate to the government And what's our relationship to them? How do we respond? Very quickly, reminder, the first principle is given to us in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 5, submit to the government. And submission is for all people. Submission, when we talk about submission, is a willing and joyful placing of ourselves underneath and following the authority of whoever is over us. And this is the norm. As we think about government and our relationship to it, Submission is the norm. Civil disobedience is not the norm. The baseline is submission. And the reason Paul says that is because lack of submission is rebellion against God. That's verse 2. If you oppose the authority governmentally that is over you, you you're opposing the ordinance of God. So verse 2 answers the why question. Why should we submit? Because submission to the government is submission to God. To oppose the ordinance of God is to stand in judgment of God, and it is to oppose His purposes. It's akin to what Peter did to Jesus when Jesus said He was going to go to the cross and die and be resurrected. You remember Peter's response, Matthew 16? God forbid it, Lord! You can't be more emphatic than that. This will never happen to you. And of course, Jesus rebukes Peter as espousing a satanic lie. To rebel against God, or to rebel against government is to rebel against God. Submission is also for maintaining a clear conscience. That's verse 5. It is necessary to be in subjection. It's a divine constraint. It's necessary. It's not optional. It is essential to submit so that we avoid God's wrath. In fact, he says there are two reasons to be in subjection and why it's necessary, not only because of wrath. In other words, you want to submit so you don't experience God's wrath. And then also for conscience sake, so that you learn to train your conscience to follow your conscience in doing what is right. So when we submit, we are training ourselves to follow the government. Are there exceptions? There are exceptions. We looked at this at some length. This is what derailed me last week. So we won't go back there, but just a reminder, we are required to disobey when we are commanded to worship falsely. And we saw three examples of that in the book of Daniel, Daniel 1, 3, and 6. And then we are also required to obey God and not government when we are commanded to disobey God's clear command. And just by way of reminder, civil obedience is not an option to make our lives more comfortable Civil disobedience is not an option in order to give us an easy life. In fact, when we disobey, life will often become much more uncomfortable because of the consequences that come from government. So we will honor God when we willingly and joyfully accept the consequences of our disobedience from the government. There's no complaining if we are disobedient to the government and we suffer as a result. That's Acts chapter 5. In fact... Peter and John rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer. Maybe just one example here. 
Uh, We are well aware that homosexual marriage is now legalized. But we only become disobedient to that law when we are forced or compelled to in some way participate in a homosexual union. Either being forced to marry someone who is a homosexual or performing that act or performing that ritual of quote-unquote marriage. That day may be coming sooner than we have anticipated. And if I disobey then, and I say, no, I will not marry two people who want to be joined together in a so-called marriage, in a homosexual union, and I go to jail, then I go to jail. I'm not given freedom to overthrow the government if I don't like the law. And just for clarity's sake, I don't like it. And it's not just me, it's unbiblical. So that's where we've been. Second thing we need to do is we need to do what is good. Notice that Paul in verse 3 twice says to do good. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, and there the good behavior is implied. So you should be acting good, and if you act good, you won't, you won't be, um, you won't be punished by the government. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So Paul says to do good. What did that look like in his culture? The phrase good behavior that he uses here at the beginning of verse 3 is actually the term good works. And it's the term that is often used of the good works of the believer after his salvation. For we are created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, for good works. Same term that's used here. But I think Paul is thinking much more broadly than that. He's not just thinking about the effects of our salvation and the good things that come from our salvation. But but here he's talking about the good behavior that includes obedience to the law of the government. Doing things that are good and beneficial for the government and for society. Things that have social significance and kindness. He's going to be specific in verse 6. By identifying at least one of the things we do that's good, and that's paying taxes. But he's going to, I think, imply there's all kinds of things beyond that as well. In fact, verse 7, again, he's, he's more general. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to custom, fear to fear, honor to whom honor is due. And those are, those are more general terms. So how should we think about what Paul is saying? Well, one of the things I think Paul is intending us to understand here is that doing good is anything that demonstrates godly love and goodness within the culture. Anything that relates to doing what is good as an overflow of our citizenship in that country and in that culture. It would be things like picking up the trash along the road to your house giving a homeless man a meal, volunteering to serve at the hospital a day a week, delivering meals on wheels, mowing your homebound neighbor's yard, reading to children at the local elementary school, serving as a delegate to your political party's convention, flexing a flat tire for a stranded motorist, baking cookies and sharing them at the police station with the officers as long as you leave some cookie dough for your husband. Just saying. Saying something kind to your server at a restaurant, hosting a foreign exchange student, a teenager who is struggling at school, or, 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 or. It's just investing in the culture and seeing needs and responding to it. Brothers and sisters, we should be knowing, known for being good and doing things like that. Anything that demonstrates godly love, compassion, care for our brothers and sisters. Doing good also means being involved in the political process without putting our ultimate hope in that process. Now, the apostle didn't have much opportunity to do that. But there's a section in 
the end of Acts that implies that he understands the principle and he uses that principle. And we are in a much different position than the apostle was, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We have many options available to us to engage in the political process that very few have had through the history of the world. So I think that Paul would cheer us on and say, we, we can vote and we should vote. That's to do good. When we vote in the political process, we're casting a ballot that says, I am, I am seeking the best good for this culture at this time. We can enter into politics either as a candidate or some kind of advocate for a cause or a law. That's, that's why we got involved with the Brazos Pregnancy Clinic many years ago when it was first starting up. Because we had a, a passion for that cause, for the preservation of human life at its beginning. We can lobby and petition and write and discuss and defend the truth. We can engage in thoughtful discussion and debate. But brothers and sisters, those actions must always be done in a way that honors God. And that demonstrates that we are trusting God and not the law or the candidate that we support. I like what John Stott wrote in one of his commentaries. It is not enough for Christians to be law-abiding so far as our conscience permits us. We are to be public-spirited as well. To be ready, eager, not reluctant. To do whatever is good whenever we have the opportunity. According to both Paul and Peter, the state has the double duty to punish evil and promote good. So God's people should be ready to cooperate with it in both these areas. No, we should, we should be looking for opportunities to say, how can I do good and benefit my fellow man in this world, in this country? Doing good also means praying for those who are in authority over us. First Timothy chapter two, verses one and two. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And I think Paul might assume that Titus and the other elders in Crete living in that very difficult place might have questions about, well, what do you mean by all men, Paul? Because he identifies it immediately in verse two for kings. And all who are in authority. So we need to pray for whatever they need as they lead. We know from verse 3 that we should pray as well for their salvation. Excuse me, verse 4. Because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So some of the all men that we're praying for that are kings, we need to pray for them. God, would you open their eyes So that they see the light of the glory of Christ. And have their hearts renewed and rejuvenated and brought to life. What's notable is not only that we pray with thanksgiving. Did you notice that verse 1? Entreaties, prayers, petitions and thanksgivings for all men, for kings. Not only what we do. But notice the end of verse 2, why we do it. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We pray for those who are in authority over us so that we can live peaceable, anxious, free, contented, satisfied lives. As we think about the good we do, There's one thing that's the best good, and that is evangelizing. We can do no better for others and our culture than to preach the gospel. Remember what Paul said at the beginning of Romans chapter 10? My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for his fellow Israelites, is for their salvation. As he thought about the nation of Israel and Israel's rebellion and their walk against God. What he desired for them more than anything else was their salvation. 
And what did he do? He preached the gospel and then he calls us as well to preach the gospel. Verse 14 of chapter 10. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The best thing we can bring is the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you walk in this world with that message, you got beautiful feet. You please the Lord. It's honoring to Him. The best good that we can do in our world, in our country as well, is evangelism. Because the problem in our country is not the government. The problem in our country is the people who elect the governing officials. See, our, our country is unusual being a democracy in that our leaders are simply a composite of who we are as a country. And when we see ungodly leadership, it is a reflection of an ungodly country. And what do we do in an ungodly country where people are doing ungodly things and enacting, and, and enacting ungodly laws and electing ungodly officials? We need to evangelize those who are ungodly, so that they can be freed from the shackles of sin that have bound them. We prioritize the gospel so that as many in this culture will believe as is, as is possible. Listen to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 4. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. So as you think about people who are outside the walls of this church, who are outside Christ, who are outside the church, who are in the world, we need to be wise as we conduct ourselves with them, making the most of the opportunity, letting your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So that as you go outside these walls, your, your speech is salty. And by that, I don't mean it's profane. I mean, it's, it's salty. So like when you eat something salty, you go, I need, I need something to, I need something to drink. I need something that'll quench my thirst. And we do that spiritually. And when they're thirsty, then we hand them the truth of the gospel of Christ that quenches thirst for all time. So we prioritize the gospel. I wasn't sure where to put this. So consider this a bracket and an aside. Um, it doesn't really fit anywhere directly in the passage, but I think it's a question that you may have. What about a tyrannical government? What about a tyrannical leader? Is it righteous to rebel or overthrow tyranny? I think at times... Political scientists, theologians will tell you that at times it is appropriate for those who are in government when they are serving underneath tyrannical authorities to enact another kind of law that removes the authority from those who are abusing, abusing that privilege of authority. In such cases, one theologian has said they're acting against a criminal gang masquerading as a government. So there, there are times when it, is, it may be appropriate to overthrow a tyrannical leader. However, fundamentally, that's the wrong question. It's kind of like the couple that comes to you for premarital counseling and says, how far can we go and still honor Christ? Wrong question. 
question is, how pure can you remain? That's the goal. And that question, is it okay to overthrow a tyrannical ruler, really cuts underneath the heart of what Paul is saying here. And that is we are to submit and do good. One of the ways that we can do good against tyranny is to support our own government in its work to protect people of other nations by acts of war, to uphold good governments elsewhere, and to supplant tyranny elsewhere. And if tyranny would show up in our own country, we need to use appropriate, good, legal means with our own governmental system without attempting to take authority for ourselves illegitimately. And you are welcome to correct me, but I cannot think of a place in Scripture where anarchy is commended. Just can't think of it. It may be there, but I can't think of it. And frankly, let's just be honest here. Uh, This is Terry talking. This is not necessarily the text. I just don't trust myself with this kind of mindset. This reads to me as... When I get my rights taken away, I have a right to rebel. And I just don't trust my heart in those moments. It's not good for my heart that way. I don't have rights as a follower of Christ. I'm enslaved to Him, to follow Him. So that's what I think Paul would imply about doing good at his time. But we live in a democracy. So what does doing good look like here? How should we think about our own relationship to the government since I am part of the government? As Lincoln noted in his Gettysburg address, the government is of the people, by the people, for the people. If the government is wrong, then I'm the problem. Interestingly, this is, this is free. Interestingly, Lincoln didn't come up with that statement. You know where that came from? It came from the 14th century, 1384. John Wycliffe wrote it in the prologue to one of his early translations of the English Bible. And what he wrote was this. This Bible is for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. So when we hear that statement in our country, we ought to think not government. We ought to think Bible governs my heart and controls my soul. That was free. What does it look like here? Use whatever legal means you have to influence the government. Um, Again, I'm, I'm reading in the white lines of the text, as Keith likes to say, I'm drawing some implications here of what Paul has said. Most often this means we should exercise our responsibility to vote. When I vote for a a godly candidate or a candidate who's standing up for moral righteousness, even if he's not a believer, and when he stands for policies that are righteous in nature, I'm doing good for my country. That being said, we are not omniscient. And we don't have all of the information that we need to make these decisions. And these decisions are often complex and go way beyond what information we have. So, brothers and sisters, can we just allow for disagreements about how to interpret how best to vote? It is popular in some circles To say, I don't believe that you can be a member of, fill in the name of a political party, and be a Christian. Be careful. If that statement is true, if you can't be, let's just say what I hear with some regularity, if you can't be a Democrat and a Christian, that means if you are a member of Grace Bible Church, and you're a Democrat, that we must church discipline you out of the church for being unregenerate. Is that where you want to go? Don't think so. 
We don't want to discipline people for being democratic or republican or libertarian. Now, there are times, I think, when disciplining people for being members of political parties is probably appropriate. If somebody is a card-carrying member of the KKK, I think it's appropriate to discipline them out of the church. If they're a member of the Nazi party in Germany in 1942, it's appropriate to discipline them out of the church. But let's be careful about things like this. Let's, let's recognize that there are complexities to these issues and we don't have all the answers. I've been really helped. I don't agree with everything in his book. I don't think I agree with everything in any book except the Bible. Um, but I've been really helped by listening, by reading Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nations Rage. And I take this diagram from him. As you think about the house of the world that we live in, if you will, the foundation of that house is biblical covenants, biblical commissions, biblical commands. Those are the things God says, thou shalt. Thou shalt not kill. That's simple. And we hold tight to those. The roof of the structure is justice. We always want to do what is right and honorable, reflecting the character and the nature of God. And we hold that tightly. I will not give up on righteousness. In between the foundation of God's word and the bringing about of justice are things like ideologies and constitutions and parties and candidates and policies. Those are things that we would call wisdom issues. They're the application of the principles and they are not always directly lined up from Scripture. We've got to take some steps in order to get there. Those things let's hold loosely because we can be wrong. So, Lehman writes this. As an isolated issue, abortion is different than, say, health care policy. Abortion is more of a, excuse me, health care policy is more of a jagged line wisdom issue. Christians might bring biblical convictions to bear in a conversation about health care policy. We should care for the downtrodden. We should treat all people with dignity and respect. We should seek to remove entrenched cycles of injustice and the poverty that follows. We should ensure the, ins the insurers and medical practitioners are fair and honest and don't swindle patients. We should be skeptical of government involvement in health care that arguably hurts the quality of care and so forth. But it's no easy task to add all these principles together in order to yield a biblical or Christian position. Hence, many Christians would admit that the path from biblical principle to political application is more jagged and unclear. Broadly speaking, we can say that wisdom helps us determine whether an issue is a straight line issue or a jagged line issue. And obviously, it's not always clear which is which. That's part of the need for wisdom. Now, even with a straight line issue like abortion... We're against killing. Questions of political strategy and implementation are significant. Just because we agree abortion is wrong doesn't determine which is the best legislative or judicial strategy in stopping abortion. One Christian might argue for one strategy and another for another. Even there then, wisdom is needed. Also, not all issues fall neatly into straight line bucket or jagged line bucket. There's a spectrum between the two. Yet whether in private conversations among friends or public conversations in the blogosphere, how often, here's where he's going to get to meddling, how often do Christians talk as if their position on health care or tax policy or immigration or foreign policy is the only acceptable Christian position and that all other positions are sin. Oh, he's dead on right. So let's be careful to hold firm, not waver, 
not give up one micrometer on truth, but on things that are implied, let's be careful and let's hold them loosely. Another implication that comes from this, use whatever means you have to influence the government. Sometimes in an election, your candidate won't win. The referendum that you wanted passed doesn't get passed. There's still additional ways to influence the political process by lobbying and calling or emailing politicians and petitioning candidates or petitioning against potential laws and making appeals and using the judicial system all in accordance with your conscience. Perfectly legitimate to do all those things and more. In fact, it's interesting. We won't take the time to do it. But read through sometime Acts 25 to 28. And while Paul is in the Roman system, he uses Roman law to his advantage and is willing to make judicial appeals according to the law to accomplish the ends that he desires. So we can do that. That's legitimate. It's appropriate. So Paul, who says submit to the government, doesn't just roll over. He appeals and he preaches and he proclaims and he declares. And, and he, is un, he is will not willing to compromise the truth when he's standing before governing officials. That's okay. We can do all those things. But then, as you do those things... And as culture and country inevitably decline, don't be discouraged when the means that you use to attempt to influence the country for good are overwhelmed by injustice or evil. Our good efforts will often and ultimately will inevitably always be defeated until Christ returns. So just be faithful. The Lord hasn't called you to change the culture. That's his job. The Lord hasn't called you to save individuals. That's his job. He's just called you to be faithful, to do what is good, and to carry the gospel. Okay, now I'm going to move faster. Train your conscience. There's so many issues. You know, I just gave the tip of the iceberg at the beginning of the message we need to learn those issues and examine what the Scripture says about those issues and, and what, what the biblical responses are in those circumstances. And then we act. Again, tempering our action with not being more firm than the Bible is firm. So train your conscience. Evaluate where your conscience is, what is provoking you, what is not provoking you, and asking, is my conscience aligned with Scripture? Guard your heart and control your words. Guard your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the wellspring of life. There are appropriate ways to speak about our government and our leaders. And there are inflammatory and slanderous words that we might say about them. And those inflammatory words reveal a heart that is angry and undisciplined. And then that anger, as it is fomented and as it is expressed and as it is left unresolved, will continue to feed our discontentment and our distrust and just perpetuate the cycle into full anxiety and discontentment. You might take some time today, as I have in the last couple of weeks, and just said, Lord, what are my words like? Is there anything I need to confess? Where's my heart? Be a faithful citizen of both your countries. We have responsibilities here, privileges here. Remember what Paul says? Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be a citizen here. It's better to focus on our citizenship in heaven. I won't say I'm old, but the years are stacking up. 
58 at the moment. It's a lot of years. My family history, maybe 20, maybe 10. Other side of the family, maybe 30 or 40 more. When I've been in heaven for 10,000 years, it's like 10 days. 100,000 years, like 100 days. It's a drop in the bucket. And we focus all of our energy here and we forget that this isn't our destination. Heaven is. Conformity to Christ is our destination and He will be our satisfaction. And we want to invest the massive bulk of our time in building that kingdom and not this kingdom. So be a faithful citizen of both your countries. And then remember this. Remember Romans 11. And this is, I wouldn't say this in Israel. I wouldn't say this in Ukraine. I wouldn't say this in Papua New Guinea. But Americans seem to have this forgetfulness about who God's covenant people are. And God is fulfilling His promises, brothers and sisters, to Israel, not America. Now, I love this country. I chose to be an American. Y'all, all the rest of y'all, it just happened to you. You, had, you didn't have any choice. I chose. I came from a distant land up north. And not only came to America, but came to Texas as fast as I could. And I chose to be an American. I love this country. But it's not God's chosen country. Israel is God's chosen people. I love America. I love, I love the mountains and I love the seaside and I love the forests and I love the beach and I love the water. And there's just some beautiful places in America. This is not the promised land. We should be grateful for our country, but we should understand that what is done here is not ultimate and it will not bring in God's kingdom. And the King of Kings will set up His throne in His place at His time. And we don't need to be distraught about things that go awry here. So God says the believers are to honor the government by submitting to it and doing good and paying your taxes. Okay, let's pray and go home. Boy, isn't that a tough one? No one likes to pay taxes. I was going to do my taxes, our taxes, yesterday afternoon and ran out of time. Isn't that too bad? Notice that Paul says twice in these verses, verse 6 and then in verse 7, pay your taxes. If you owe a tax, pay it. But you don't understand. You, you, Paul, Paul doesn't understand he doesn't understand how unfair the taxes are and how foolishly the money is spent and how ungodly men are spending it. Yeah, actually he does. One writer notes, in New Testament times, under Herod the Great, taxes in Palestine were levied on almost everything, especially on the fields. The kinds of taxes grew in such numbers that both the rich and poor felt the heavy burden. There were land or real estate taxes, a poll tax, export and import taxes collected at seaports and at the gates of cities or country, a crop tax, one-tenth of a grain crop, one-fifth of a wine crop, fruit crop, an oil crop, an income tax, taxes to use a road or taxes to enter certain towns, taxes on animals, taxes on vehicles, a salt tax, a sales tax, a tax on the sale of slaves and the transfer of property. And if that didn't cover it, they had emergency taxes. And in spite of that, Paul says, pay your taxes. Why? Notice what he says. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For, because rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Governing authorities are God's servant. They may not recognize it, but they are. They've devoted that themselves to that task. And they have a right to be supported financially, to put food 
on their table and clothes on their backs and a roof over their head and have funds to do what they've been called to do in their country. That doesn't give them a right to become wealthy in their role, but it does mean that we have a responsibility to pay, period. Again, John Stott is helpful. Christians should accept their tax liability with good grace, paying their dues in full, both national and local, direct and indirect, and also giving proper esteem to the officials who collect and apply apply them. Do tax gatherers abuse their privileges? Sure. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He not only gathered way more than he should have, he evidently was a shrewd investor because he was able to pay back four times what he gathered illegally. Tremendously wealthy. And what would God say? Pay your taxes. That's what Jesus told Peter. Remember the story? Peter, bring me a denarius. Whose picture you see there, Peter? Whose picture do you see? Caesar. Whose image is it? Caesar. Caesar makes the coin, puts his picture on it. Give it back to Caesar. Belongs to him. Look carefully at the coin. Whose whose image is on it? Caesar. Look carefully. Whose image? Whose image does Caesar bear? The image of God. And when we pay our taxes to Caesar, it's a way of paying our taxes to God, to rendering to God what is due him as well. Paul goes even beyond taxes. Verse 7, render, pay back to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Tax, he's just reinforcing what he said in verse 6. Custom, that's another term that relates to taxation. It's a revenue, a taxation on goods and services. Fear, that's respect, reverence. Even of those who collect taxes, or perhaps especially of those who collect taxes. Honor, just a reminder again that we are to treat honorably all those who are in authority. So Paul says in Titus chapter 3, or we are to malign no one to be gentle, peaceable, showing every consideration for all men. That sums it up well. We're to talk well about our authorities and treat them with dignity, respect, and honor. There you go. Pretty simple, huh? I can think of no better way to finish this than to commend ourselves to God for His grace to help us to do which is so contrary to the flesh. Isn't it? It is for me. I've been thinking for weeks about these messages and all the implications on me. And that there, there are things I don't like. They push against my flesh. And, but the Lord has put them there for our good. And so let us pray. And ask him to give us an ability to do this. Our Father, as we bow our heads, we pray first of all for ourselves. Would you forgive us for rebellious actions and malicious and spiteful words and angry attitudes that have overflowed into malicious, venomous, hostile Anarchy, enticing kinds of speech. The Savior didn't speak that way. And he has given us an example to follow. And we have not followed well. Would you forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness? And then in cleansing us, would you also give us discernment and ability And self-control to honor all of our leaders well. Would you give us resoluteness to be unwavering where we need to be firm? And would you give us wisdom to think through the complexity of difficult issues with biblical accuracy 
and to relate to others who have differing opinions graciously, kindly. Might we be known as those who disagree, but do so with tenderness, inviting conversation, and speaking reasonably, benevolently. And then most of all, Lord, would you give us boldness and clarity with the gospel? Would you make us better citizens of heaven than America? And our Father, we also pray for our governing authorities. We ask first of all, most of all, that you would be gracious and save them from your wrath by Christ's blood. For many who are ruling over us, not all, and we thank you for the ones who have been redeemed, but many walk in rebellion against you. And the wrath they face is unimaginable to us. We know from your word a little bit of what hell is like. We do not long for any to go there. Father, would you quicken them, awaken them? If the president is not a believer, that you would alert him to his need for salvation. Our Supreme Court justices, our senators, our representatives in Washington, our senators and representatives in Austin, our mayor, the county commissioners, the local judges, the police with whom we might have to interact even this week. Father, would you be gracious to save and redeem? And until you save them, we ask that you would make them to rule well with justice and righteousness. That though they do not have the heart of Christ, they do have a conscience that you have given them to lead them to moral actions and might they follow that conscience well. And we ask that you would give them to rule wisdom to rule well in these terribly difficult and exceedingly complex days. These are the rulers that you have granted to us. We pray for them and we thank you for them. In your sovereign will, they are exactly the rulers that we need. And so we give you thanks and we submit in Christ's name. Amen.